Perfect. It's pretty good, right? You laughing at my stand? How's your Christmas? Pretty good? Acceptable? <laughs> All right. It's the Apostles' Creed. Sing along if you know the words. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Pretty good, crew. Pretty good. Some of you have done that before. Some of you are waiting for some hammer dulcimer to start in there. Rich Mullins fans got the joke. I would say that today, I believe these things as strongly as I've ever believed anything. But there's still so much about God that I don't understand. Stuff that's hard for me to wrap my head around. Stuff that's hard to believe. It's not hard for me to believe in an all-powerful creator of the universe. All right, your mileage may vary, but it's not hard for me to believe that the biographies of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are accurate, that Jesus is the man described in those books, and he did the stuff that they say he did, and he said the words they say he said. I believe that he died on a cross, he rose again, and that he's still at work today. I believe that he saves those who call on his name. Here's where I struggle. The God described in the Bible is so fundamentally different from us. He's almost alien from us. Your ways are not my ways, he says. All the nations around Israel worship gods that were fundamentally, basically just like people, only bigger. All right? Zeus and Poseidon and Baal and Horus, they have human virtues and human vices. Those gods are limited just like we're limited. Their limits are higher, but they're not fundamentally different. The God of the Bible, though, is a whole nother ballgame. He has no limits except those that he sets for himself. He's not limited by time. He's not limited by space, by location, by knowledge. He's not like the gods of ancient mythology. You can't fool him. You can't hide from him. You can't run from him. He's the alpha and the omega. He's the beginning and the end. He's the creator and the judge. Can I get an Amen. Now, I can accept that a God like that can exist. What's hard for me to wrap my mind around is if a God like that exists, then why would he be interested in me? If a God like that exists, why, why would he be interested in me? David, the psalmist, said it this way. He said, when I consider the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is mankind that you're mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. 
See, the difference, I don't know if you've thought about it this way, the difference between what I know and what God knows is bigger than the difference between me and like an ant, right? God's not like 10% smarter than you or 20% smarter than you. It's a whole nother, it's a whole nother level, right? Like I'm bigger and stronger and smarter than an ant to the degree that what could an ant ever do for me, right? I mean, I can imagine caring about ants in general. I don't, but like I could, <laughs> right? But I can't imagine even caring about like one particular ant. I can't imagine caring that much. So the question that hits me in the middle of the night isn't, does God exist? It's, why does he notice me? Why would he notice us? And I'm not the only one asking this question. Back in November, we did this all-church spiritual assessment. You guys may remember that. And uh, it was a survey, and it was lengthy. All right, it was 15 to 30 minutes it took to, to, uh, to pull it off. And over 500 people participated. So, you know, basically Whitewater people spent between 150 and 250 hours filling out this survey. And we're really thankful for it. We're really continuing to chew through the data. There's a lot of stuff that we're still learning from it. Um, here's one thing we learned. By and large, whitewater people believe that God exists. I thought that might get a laugh. Like, uh, that's a good bar, right? Like, God exists. We're there, okay? Most of us. Which is great. Um, but the average whitewater person is not quite as certain, not quite as confident about questions like, is there an actual relationship there? Do I really feel close to God? Do I really know that he loves me personally? Like, it's not hard to believe that Jesus died for humanity, that he loves humanity, but, but does he notice me personally? Why would Jesus die for me personally? It's actually ridiculous that anybody would think that. Like, why? that's crazy. Why would, the only reason that we have to think that that's true is that God tells us again and again and again that it's the case. Luke, the doctor historian, he records this saying of Jesus. He says, Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? Yet not one of them is forgotten by God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. Now, I don't know anything about sparrows, but um, I do raise chickens, all right? When I grew up, I wasn't a country boy or a city boy, right? I was a suburban boy. Any suburbanites in the house that you're willing to admit, all right? So, but we went camping all the time, and we had a really big garden, so I kind of thought, I figured I was country, and so uh, when we got a kind of a big yard, we decided, you know, we're going to do like a mini farm, right? Like, how hard could it be? And so... There's the laughs from the people that have done this. Uh, so we decided to start with chickens, right? I watched a ton of like YouTube videos about how to, and I, I designed the perfect coop, and I I, we picked out exactly the breeds we wanted. We bought our first chicks, and they were adorable. They looked like this. Aww, right? Lies. <laughs> chickens are vicious, stupid, filthy barnyard animals. Like, I had no idea how much chickens poop, all right? You know how you always have to wash your hands after dealing with poultry? It's because chickens poop constantly, all the time. They, they, you can't, like, get them to use a litter box or anything. It's like they, they poop on themselves, they poop on their food and the eggs, on other chickens. Like, anything is fair game to a chicken, right? And they're so stupid. Like, 
After we had chickens, I said to my wife, now I finally understand the phrase bird-brained, okay? Because they're just not bright creatures. And they're mean. Chickens are so mean, I had no idea. Chickens have a pecking order, right? You've heard the word a pecking order? Literally, it means the biggest and most aggressive chicken picks on another one, and then it goes and finds somebody it can pick on, and it finds somebody it picks on, and then eventually the whole thing sorts itself out to where there is a pecking order of the chickens where the one at the top and the one that the, you can tell which one's which, right? And the one at the bottom's always missing feathers. Like, it's, it's not good. And then for a while, we were kind of running a chicken rescue. People would, oh, you have chickens, we have some. And so people were dropping off chickens with us, right? And so every time that happened, it upset the pecking order. So somebody gave us the biggest, ugliest, meanest rooster that I have ever seen in my entire life. This thing was a nightmare. It terrorized all of our hens. They stopped laying. And uh, I I have a video of it. I was going to show the video on on this screen. And uh, my wife said, don't do that. And I was like, no, it'll be fine, it'll be good. She said, don't, don't show that. So I asked her opinion, I should probably take her advice. So I, I'm not going to show you, but I'm just telling you, this chicken was a nightmare. And uh, it, it was causing all kinds of problems for us, right? So eventually we, uh, you know, did one of those. And, <laughs> and dressed it. And if you, if, you, if you love animals, dress it means we put it in clothing, right? So uh, <laughs> after we had dressed the bird, it dressed out actually heavier than our Thanksgiving turkey. That's how big this chicken was. It was a monster chicken, all right? Now, I know what you're thinking, but I'm not off topic, okay? Stay with me. To the chickens, I was like God. I was like the God of the chickens, right? Everything they had, they had from my hands, right? I decided when they came into the coop, and I decided when they left. That was it. I was like the God of the chickens, right? I wasn't a loving God. I wasn't a caring God, right? I didn't want a relationship with my chickens. I just wanted the eggs, okay? But look how different that is from what Luke describes, right? Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? Yet not one of them is forgotten by God. We literally forgot our chickens' names. We named all of them because you named, we were like, oh, we'll name them. We couldn't tell which ones were. We called all of them Nugget, actually. Uh, (laughs) Yet not one of them is forgotten by God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. The hairs of your head are numbered. Don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. The hairs of your head are numbered. The hairs on my head are numbered. You see the joke coming, don't you? I don't know how many hairs are on my head. I know it's easier to count than it used to be, okay? Laugh at the bald guy. But I don't know how many hairs are on on my head. God is literally saying, I know more about you than you know about yourself. I know stuff about you you haven't even figured out yet. That's how well I know you. And not only does he know me, he likes me. He loves me. Not only does God know you, he likes you. He loves you. Think about another parable that Luke records about a different kind of farmer. Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go out after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven 
over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. There will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who don't need to repent. Here's a hint, good hint to keep in mind. You're not the 99, you're the one, right? I know this week between Christmas and New Year's um, is not one where we typically get a lot of brand new visitors, right? You got to be pretty dedicated to be here. Like it's all I can do to remember what day we're on between Christmas and New Year's, right? So, uh, so you're dedicated, you're here, and so you're, you might be thinking like, I'm, I'm the 99 and somebody needs to leave and go after the one. No, you're the one. You're the one. I'm the one. We're not the 99. There is nobody in this room, there is nobody on this planet who doesn't need to repent. Jesus came after you. He pursued you. He lifted you up out of the pit. He untangled you from the brambles. He put you on his shoulders. He carried you home. Jesus says that he loves you more than a sheep, that he loves you more than a chicken. This is the most amazing story about God. This is the thing that most blows my mind. It's not that he created the universe. It's not that he died on a cross for the sins of mankind. It's that he cares about you personally by name and wants to have a relationship with you. That's unbelievable to me. And if you matter to the all-powerful creator of the universe, then you matter, period. Your life matters. Your story matters. And it should matter to us because it matters to God. God has been seeking you. God has been chasing you. God has been calling you your entire life. Since the moment you were born, God's saying, hey, I'm here, come to me. Sometimes it's only in retrospect, only when we look back that we can really see that for certain. Watch this video to see what I mean. God has spared my life four times. Hi, my name's Alan. My wife and I have been coming here for a few years now. Uh, my son and daughter-in-law had been coming here, and uh, they told us, you know, how much that they had liked it. So after a few times uh, that we'd been here, we knew that this was a church for us. I was a senior in high school, and I had a ruptured appendix for three days. Uh, the doctor said that uh, I might not make it through surgery because peritonitis had set in. And I was Catholic at the time, and I was given the last rites and anointed for death. The next time I was a, uh, it was in the military. I went to Vietnam and, uh, and in 1967 I was wounded and I spent the next eight months in the hospital. They had 13 operations and <clears throat> at the time my best friend died but God spared me again. He was just one step behind me to my right and I don't understand why he died and, uh, and I lived. I mean I was talking to him an hour before he uh, passed away and he seemed to be all right but apparently uh, his injuries were, you know, worse. And the first thing I wanted to do, naturally I, I broke down and cried and I asked the nurse if I thought, you know, if she thought that he went to heaven. And then in 1986, I developed cancer. God spared my life again. In 1987, the cancer was back and he spared my life again. I really don't know why or, or how, but then, you know, throughout the years, all the things that had happened to me, 
There is a reason for me to be here. He's not finished with me yet, so whatever he has in store for me, I'll go ahead and accept it, no matter which way it is, whether it's good or whether it's bad. Take the time to, I guess you're gonna be bitter at times, you know, as I was too. Because when I had cancer twice, you know, I had a wife and I had two kids, and that's what was on my mind. Why is this happening to me again and again and again? But, you know, it's, it's, you just have to accept, you know, what, what God puts in store for us. I love that line. He's not finished with me yet. He's not finished with me yet. And Alan's right. God's not finished with him yet. He's not finished with you yet either. He's not finished with your story. Because you have a story. We have a story. We individually and then we collectively as Whitewater have a story. And even that is a small part of the larger story of what God is doing to change our world. In Luke 13, 34, Jesus has this amazing line that I love, right? He says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who sent you, how I long to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were not willing. How I long to gather your children together as a, chick, as a hen gathers her chicks. Jesus says, I'm here. I want to watch after, after you. I want to shelter you. I want to teach you to scratch, but you're not willing. Now, you know someone who's far from God, right? And you can see that God is at work calling them, even if they don't see it yet for themselves. Picture their face in your mind. Who do you know that God might be calling to himself? I mean, the answer is everybody, obviously, right? Like everybody. But there's a person that probably came to your mind. Now, we know that no one comes to the Father unless he calls them first. But we also know that he calls all of us. That he doesn't want any to perish, but for all to have everlasting life. So who do you know that needs to come home? Actually, maybe it's not somebody else. Maybe the somebody is you. Maybe you're the one that God is calling it's not too late. It's never too late. I've got one last video for you today. Watch this. I basically fell apart because uh, I was taught that I committed a sin and God didn't love me. I committed the mortal sin. Whether you're planning on doing it or not planning on doing it, if you feel touched by the Holy Spirit and you want to give your heart to God, then you should go ahead and do it. I want to experience that joy and that acceptance and that total completeness that comes with the experience and the joy of being baptized. I wanted to wash my sins away and live a better life. I kind of always try to do things my way. My way doesn't really work, obviously, so I'm trying to make it a priority to do things that God's telling me to do instead of selfishly thinking I have all the answers. I've never really thought I was worthy of anything, but through a lot of conversations with people and a lot of really great experiences, I've learned that you can never be perfect, yet God loves you anyway and He wants you to be with Him. It's something I've been thinking about and praying about for about a year now. Um, 
and when we came to church and found out about the all-in that was coming up I just knew that it was my time it was it was meant to be so I followed my calling and I did it and my daughter did it with me the first time I came to Whitewater I had goosebumps and I've been coming ever since so today I am here to take the next step in my faith and go all-in I was just looking for help to get figure something out how to deal with it and it was like every night the only thing that kept replaying in my mind was to turn to God. I almost want to watch it again, don't you? We're not gonna. <laughs> all in weekend is next weekend, all right? Don't miss being here. It's the best weekend of Whitewater's year. Now before we move on, there's three things I need you to know about all in weekend. First, is you don't have to wait. The agricultural grade watering tank that we have right here, right, is, uh, is only out a couple times a year, but we have the built-in right over there, okay? At any point, it's probably open 364 days a year. We gotta clean it a couple times, you know, but the water is warm, it's got a hot tub cover on there, so the water's warm, it's ready to go. Any day, you can come to Whitewater and we can baptize you, all right? And let me just tell you, like, I'm off notes here for a minute. So after last service, I said that exact thing that I said, and then after last service, three different people said, I want to go all in today. And so we did two baptisms between service, and then Lauren got baptized during this service. She had not planned on getting baptized until today. So like any day, we can baptize you, okay? You don't have to wait for all in. Now, there's changes of clothing in the back, all right? There's, um, there's always somebody around who would love to baptize you. Second, this is the second thing. Anybody can baptize. I was recently looking through um, the pictures of people who got baptized in the last year. And because I'm a self-centered jerk, one of my first thoughts was, man, I'm in a lot of these pictures. <laughs> and like, not quite the audible voice of God, but almost, uh, God was like, do you think that's a good thing? <laughs> I was like, ooh. Now, I love to baptize people. It's the best part of this job, all right? And uh, if I have had, if I got to baptize you, then I want you to know it is my honor and privilege that I got to do that. But we believe very strongly, very firmly, that baptism is not just something that ministers do. This is what Christians do, okay? This is what all of us do. You have been commissioned by Jesus to go into all the world and make disciples and baptize them. That's the job, okay? And so you do not need to wait for me to baptize somebody or for somebody on Whitewater staff to baptize somebody. You can baptize somebody. All right? You got a pool or a river, you can do it there. You can come in here and do it here, okay? So what was great is the three people that got baptized, my first thought was like, okay, I could get waders on or I could, and I was like, no, why am I doing that? We could, we could do this. And so there was a gentleman sitting right over here. He said, I could baptize him. Great, do that. And so he got up and bat it was awesome. So nobody on staff did any of those three baptisms. It was a very cool thing, all right? Baptism isn't just something that pastors get to do. This is something that we all get to do. So one of our goals for the next year is that more and more and more of the people that get baptized here at Whitewater are baptized not by a staff person or a pastor or a minister, but by the person who shared their faith with them, the person that invited them, the, ver the person who mentored them. So don't just think about who you might be inviting to Whitewater. Think about who you might be baptizing. All right? Last thing is this. Baptism is not the end of the story. One thing I see a lot of is I meet people on a spiritual journey that leads them to Jesus and they make it there and then their natural thought is like, 
oh, I'm here. I did it. Right? Get to baptism and you think, I'm done. Now, in a way, you are, right? You made it home. But in another way, that's just the end of the prequels. All right? Baptism isn't the end of your spiritual life. It's the beginning. It's not the finale to your adventure with Jesus. It's the prologue. Okay? So whether you're getting baptized next week or whether it, has, it was 20 years ago, don't stop at baptism. All right? Let me talk for a minute about beginnings and endings. Now, my story isn't finished yet. But the, story called, the chapter of the story called 2019 is about to come to a close. Now, if you know me well, you might know this is my favorite time of the year. Not Christmas, although I love Christmas. Um, I love the end of the year. Now, some people love the beginning of the year, and I get that. Like, it's new, and it's exciting, and it's fresh. But I've got a really low attention span, so I start new stuff all the time. Like, there's always something new in my life. But there's a special pleasure for me when I finish things. I get to get to the end. When I look back and say, yeah, I did that, right? So that's what I love about the end of December. I get to look back at the year and say, yeah, I did that. That's done. Did any of you uh, watch or read A Christmas Carol this year? Christmas Carol? A Muppet Christmas Carol? (laughs) I see a few more hands there. All right. Uh, It's about a guy named Ebenezer Scrooge, right? What most people don't understand is that his name is actually a play on words. Ebenezer is uh, he's named after a memory stone in 1 Samuel 7, 12. The nation of Israel won this major battle, right? And uh, the prophet Samuel set up a memory stone. You're like, memory stone? Hang with me. Uh, He set up a memory stone uh, in a place called Ebenezer, right? So Ebenezer, Ebenezer, right? That's the place name where they set up this famous stone of memory. Now, some of you guys are like, memory stone, that's like, the yellow infinity stone, or I can't remember which one's which. No, it's not that. I thought that would get a laugh. Okay. No Marvel fans here? All right. No, a memory stone in the Old Testament, a stone of memory, is a Hebrew practice that started as soon as they entered into the promised land. They'd set up these big piles of rocks with no art or design, nothing where you'd walk up and admire the sculptor, right? It's just a pile of rocks. But you'd walk up and you'd say, why is there a big pile of rocks here? And then someone who was around from that area would say, oh, this is, the, this is the place where God, dot, dot, dot. This is so we don't, remember, so we don't forget, dot, dot, dot. Now, the most famous one is, in, is the first one in the book of Joshua, chapter 4. When the whole nation had finished crossing the Jordan, that's the Jordan River, the Lord said to Joshua, choose 12 men from among the people, one from each tribe, and tell them to take up 12 stones from the middle of the Jordan from right where the priests are standing. And carry them with you and put them down at the place where you stay tonight. So Joshua called together the 12 men he had appointed from the Israelites, one from each tribe, and said to them, go over before the ark of the, uh, ark of the Lord your God into the middle of the Jordan. Each of you is to take up a stone on his shoulder. So not stone, right? Stone. Take up a stone on his shoulder according to the number of tribes of the Israelites to serve as a sign among you. In the future, when your children ask you what do these stones mean, tell them that the flow of the Jordan was cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. When it crossed the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. These stones are to be a memorial to the people of Israel forever. 
So the Israelites did as Joshua commanded them. They took 12 stones from the middle of the Jordan. They carried them over with them to their camp where they put them down. Joshua set up the 12 stones that had been in the middle of the Jordan at the spot where the priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant had stood. And they are there to this day, to the day where the book was written. So let's raise an Ebenezer today. Let's build a memory stone. Later this week, you can write all the resolutions you want about what you're going to do in 2020 and the diets you're going to have and the budget you're going to keep yourself to and how much weight you're going to lose and what books you're going to read and whatever else is going to go on your list. That's fine. I'm going to do some of that too. But today, let's do something different. Let's spend the last little bit of our time doing, uh, looking back at 2019 and doing something that I call um, uh, leave behind and take with. Now, leave behind and take with is just a simple exercise. Um, it's a simple way to end a season or an experience. Sometimes I do it after a conference. It's just two simple questions. What do I want to leave behind in 2019? What do I want to leave behind in 2019? And what do I want to take with me into 2020? I don't know what your answers are. I did this this week. Right? I know for me, the stuff I want to leave behind in 2019, I want to leave behind my perfectionism. The belief that I cannot move forward until something's perfect. I want to leave behind my workaholism. I want to be the husband and father that my wife and my kids deserve. I want to leave behind my angst about progress that I am or am not making in various areas. What I want to carry with me into 2020 is confidence in how good God has been to my family and me this year. I want to carry into 2020 the call that God has given me to make disciples. I want to carry into 2020 the commitment to be an ambassador of hope in a hopeless world. So in a few minutes, we're going to take communion just like we always do every week. But before we do that, we're just going to spend a short amount of time, just a short amount of time considering the past year and are asking ourselves these two questions. Use the space in your bulletin to take notes or you can do it on your phone if you want. But just take a, just a, a moment What might God be telling you to leave behind in 2019? What might he be telling you to take with you into 2020? Then we'll sing, we'll all take uh, the two cups, and we will uh, hold them and we'll take them together, all right? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you're good. Father, we believe that you guide us and you speak to us. We pray that you guide us now.